Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, we have the healing of a demon-possessed girl. This miracle is also found in Mark 7, Mark 7, 24 through 30. Now this passage begins by saying, And Jesus went away from there, there being Nazareth, Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee, and withdrew to a district of Tyre, and Sidon. Now we can see these and we go, hey, I recognize those as Bible names, but we sometimes have difficulty of knowing exactly where those sorts of things are. So if you look at the map, there is the Sea of Galilee down there in the middle center bottom, and up on the left on the Mediterranean Sea is Tyre and Sidon, and those green arrows is the travels of Jesus during his ministry. People have taken the four Gospels and the various places that Jesus went and written those little lines so we know where Jesus went. During this time, he went from Capernaum to Tyre. Now, Tyre is, give or take, 35 miles away from Capernaum, and this is kind of difficult to see the terrain because the flat map But if you look at this, the lighter, the more red, the the color of the topography, the higher the mountains. And so Jesus went from the Jordan Valley up over the hills there and into Tyre on the Mediterranean Sea. So it wasn't, uh, you know, you couldn't take the train. He had to walk this. It probably took several days. If you are a studier of the Old Testament, the names Tyre and Sidon uh, are familiar to you. They were massive uh, military mites. Back then you would have a city that would be large, hundreds of thousands of people. It would have a wall around it. It would have a king, and so it was its own country. And we come up with the term city-state to mean those sorts of things back then. You had Tyre. There was a king of Tyre. Tyre was famous because it was on a peninsula. And they built the city of Tyre on the end of the peninsula. And then they cut grooves and filled with tar and flammable oil between the mainland and the end of the peninsula. So it was difficult for people to invade Tyre from the land. And then they had a great army uh, to defend that. They had a navy. And so Tyre was very strong. And for generation after generation, Tyre was known as an impenetrable city. Very brutal, very strong, and not caring about human life, but uh, being able to be very rich because of the trade they were able to 
carry on. And then the Greeks came, you had the Persians come first, and the Persians tried, but the Persians had a weak navy. Then the Greeks came, and the Greeks were able to invade and take over Tyre. And at the time of Jesus, the Romans were in power, and Tyre was just a port. It was no longer a military might. Uh, the city still existed, but wasn't allowed to have an army. They were allowed to do trade and pay taxes to Rome. Same with Sidon. Sidon was a coastal port back in the day, very rich. Today it is just, today it's non-existent. But back in Jesus' day, it was just a port where the Roman ships could trade, and so the Romans, after the Greeks wiped everything out with Alexander the Great, the Romans were able to uh, use these areas for ports and such. There was no great uh, army anymore. And so, uh, when if you read through the Gospels, you will see Jesus go against the the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they do not believe the signs. And Jesus tells them, if back in the day, back in their evil, ruthless day, if Jesus was there and doing these miracles, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, the worst people you can think of on the face of the earth back 500 years, 600 years ago, the worst people would have repented, and you call yourself Pharisees and religious leaders, you call yourself religious, and yet you want to kill Jesus. And so he used Tyre and Sidon of the past as an example of how bad the Pharisees were. They were worse in Jesus' day than the military might and ruthlessness of Tyre and Sidon. And so we can ask the question, why did he do it? Why did he travel the 35 miles to get over to Sidon? Why did he leave Israel? Because Sidon is Gentile territory. It is Roman territory. There were no Jewish enclaves there. All the Jews lived near other Jews, which was around the Sea of Galilee, around Jerusalem, and in the Jordan Valley. So Jesus is leaving his hometown, and we can kind of say, well, why, why did he do that? And one logical reason is that he wanted to get away from the pressures of the day. And you say, well, what pressures was Jesus uh, under? He was first under the pressures of the multitude. If you remember the feeding of the 5,000, the multitude, thousands of people wanted to make Jesus king by force, it says that he dismissed the crowds and then went and walked on water. But the, the sense of making Jesus into a king against his will, forcing Jesus to give them free food for the rest of their lives, this sort of idea was still in the hearts and minds of certain people. And if Jesus went amongst the people... That pressure was there. The second is that Herod, King Herod, who had killed John the Baptist in prison, he had sent messengers to Jesus because he thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. 
And if Herod honestly thought that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead, then Herod had to kill him because you can't, you know, kill somebody, have them come back and let them walk around. He had to finish the job, believing that he did a bad job the first time. And so Herod was against Jesus. You also had the religious leaders. You had Caiaphas and Annas. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, the whole religious uh, establishment was against Jesus. And so if he were to minister in Jerusalem, which he does during the major festivals, they would be against him. They would uh, fight him and and try to arrest him, try to stone him as they've done. So there was pressures in that way. Now Jesus is getting close to moving toward Jerusalem. The goal of Jesus' life was to go to Jerusalem, be tried for the sins of the world, be crucified, and it had to be done His way. It had to be done the way God the Father said it had to be done to be a valid sacrifice. They couldn't just stone Jesus in the street and leave His body. That would not fulfill the sacrifice that God the Father had set up. And so uh, a lot of people look at this and they say that Jesus needed to retire with the twelve to give them instruction, to give them understanding, because when he comes back, it says in Scripture that he set his face as a flint, resolute toward Jerusalem. When he comes back from Tyre and Sidon, and does some northern miracles, uh, he then sets his, uh, his purpose is, got to go to Jerusalem. Got to be there during the Passover, got to be there and got to be crucified, got to shed blood, all the things that were involved in Jesus being a sacrifice. And so Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon to retreat to get away from the political and people pressures of the Sea of Galilee. And in doing so, he ends up at a house. And he knew that all this was going to happen. He knew that he was going to meet a lady who had issues with her daughter's demon possession. It wasn't just trying to get away and people find him. And he goes, oh, I got found out. He knew exactly what was going on. Other people say that he wasn't trying to get away from anybody at all. He was going to the woman who had the demon-possessed daughter, which is also valid from Scripture. Jesus didn't do anything by accident. Okay, so if you look in Mark, in Mark 7, it says, He arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house. We do not know where the house is. We do not know who the owner of the house is. And he did not want anyone to know, so this is how Mark got the information from Jesus, but he could not be hidden. So even way out 35 miles away, even on the coast, even in Roman territory, Jesus was known. The, the stories of his miracles had moved from town to town. There probably were bards singing about it. I mean, the way they got news back in those days, the town crier, you had people talking about Jesus um, and the miracles he had done, and then when Jesus comes to Tyre, people, oh, is that him? Oh, is that him? Oh, is that him? And he goes into this house, and apparently people conclude 
that it is him. And so when he's in this house, a woman comes. Now, if you jump to the end, verse 28, and Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. He sees a woman. He says, this woman has great faith. Therefore, maybe we can look at this and say, what is she doing that I'm not doing? What is she doing that I am doing so that I can stand before Jesus and him say, you have great faith. Okay, so we're going to look a lot at what she did and how she acted in relationship to Jesus. Now, it says that she was a Canaanite woman. If you know your Old Testament, you got Genesis, and that Genesis ends with uh, the, all the people. These Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, you had 70 some odd people, and they all go to Egypt. And that is how Genesis ends, is God's chosen people is a very small group of people, and they go to Egypt. And then you turn the page to Exodus. And they all leave, and the point of them leaving is God tells them. God tells Moses. First, God tells Abraham, takes him up to a mountain, says, look at the land. All this land is going to be your descendants. He promised land. God promised the land to Abraham. Makes the same promise to Moses. Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land. Appoints Joshua. Let's turn the page in this book of Joshua. And Joshua is given the same promise. God shows him the land, the promised land. The promised land is the whole Jordan Valley all the way over to the uh, Mediterranean Sea. So the whole, that whole section of the map, if you will, is, was promised to Israel. Now the Muslims say it was promised to them too. And so there's a big conflict as to... Who owns the land because whose God promised it to who and when? Uh, we believe God promised it first, and we believe since it's God, his promise sticks. So we believe it belongs to the Jews, but that whole area is in conflict and has been since 600 AD. Okay? And so calls her a Canaanite woman. We know the name Canaanite because when God told Joshua, go take the promised land, God said there are Canaanites living in it, and that he has been keeping the land productive by allowing sinful, pagan, idol-worshipping, false god-worshipping people known as the Canaanites live in it. And so their sin had gotten unbearable to God, and so God sends Joshua. And the command in the book of Joshua is that he displaces and utterly destroys every last Canaanite. Okay? They are living in the land, they are sinful, they are godless, and God has said, destroy them. And so... That was a long time ago. You now have Jesus and there's a Canaanite woman and Jesus knows that this is a descendant of enemies of God. Okay, Back in the book of Joshua and Judges and Ruth and 1st and 2nd Kings, all that was Canaanites were considered enemies of God. 
And so you have somebody, and Jesus knows who she is, knows her lineage, can probably trace her all the way back to somebody at the time of Joshua. Okay? Jesus can do that. And so she's a Canaanite woman, and Jesus knows that she is an enemy of God. She's a descendant of the enemy of God. And so she comes, and she was crying. And the word for crying means loudly crying. You've, you've seen people on TV, on shows or whatever, uh, you know, some whimper, some some like, okay, loud crying, loud crying, loud, okay, a shout level of crying. This woman is upset. And if you consider her upbringing, okay, she's not a Jew, she doesn't have the Old Testament, doesn't have the Bible doesn't have the worship of God in her past. She worshipped false gods. She worshipped idols. There's no evidence in this area that this group in Tyre and Sidon were involved in human sacrifices, but she could have been. Okay, They would do all manner of things to appease their God. If you remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal were shouting and cutting themselves. They were spilling their own blood to get their God's attention. Okay? So she must have. Logic would tell us that Jesus was not her first choice. Mostly because Jesus was 35 miles away during most of this. Okay? When she discovered that her daughter had a demon. She probably went to her false god temple. She probably made animal sacrifices to her false god, to her idols. She probably gave money to the priests to have them pray for uh, the demon possession. She did everything that her culture prompted her to do, and it was without effect. Her daughter did not get better. Her daughter was not cast out of the demon. And so we do not know how long this went on, but it may have gone on for a while. Then she hears, aha, Jesus is in town. I don't have to travel way over there. He's right next door. And I can go to the house, and she talked to people. She can go to the house and get her daughter cured. Jesus, at this point, may have been a last resort. Now, first she says, have mercy on me. You want great faith? You do not demand of God. You want great faith? You do not tell God what to do. You have great faith? You do not tell God how he should treat you. Because great faith requires that I understand I have no standing with God. I have no standing with God the Father. Even as a Christian in our natural state, I bring nothing to the table that God likes. Okay? The only reason I can stand before God now is because of Jesus. Jesus does all the heavy lifting. I bring nothing. So she asks for mercy. She doesn't ask for justice. Justice will get you smoten. Justice will get you sent to hell. Okay? She asks for mercy. She understands that she has nothing God likes. 
So she asks for mercy. We come to God asking for mercy shows that we have a correct understanding of my position against God's position. And it's the first step toward having great faith. She then calls Jesus Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Lord. This is a term in the New Testament in Greek that is only given to two people. One, the king. So if you happen to run across King Herod in Bible times, you could call him Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That would be accepted in society. If you ran across Caesar, you would be allowed to call him Lord. Or God, you're praying, you're praying to God. You would call God Lord, that is also acceptable. So it is a very limited use word and she uses it on Jesus. So she has an understanding. She did some level of research. She knows that this guy Jesus is a king, a majesty, uh, glorified, may not fully understand that he is God incarnate. That seems to come later for a lot of people. But does understand that God's hand is on her, on him. Calls him Lord and then says, Son of David. So she knows a little bit of history. Son of David means the coming Messiah, means anointed by God, means the Christ. You have promises given to David that a future king would sit on his throne forever, and that is Jesus. And she knows this. She wasn't raised with this knowledge. She found this out. She did research on who Jesus is, before she came to him, which also shows great faith. She calls him by the right title, Lord, and by the right name, Son of David. And so she is moving toward great faith. Faith is knowing something and doing something about it. Putting feet on your knowledge, okay? That is faith. So far, she's done everything right. She asks for mercy. She calls Jesus Lord, capital L-O-R-D. She calls Jesus Son of David. These are all true. These are all accurate. They all lift up and glorify Jesus. And so she has all the uh, statements done. All the titles and names are correct. And so what does she do next? Well, first... She's crying, she's loud, she's probably interrupting them. She probably gained interest into the house somehow and is just pushy about getting this child before Jesus. And the disciples look at this, know she's not a Jew, may not know her history as a Canaanite, but know, you know, clearly not a Jew, doesn't dress right, doesn't talk right. So she's not a Jew, and the disciples say, Jesus... Send her away, for she is crying after us. In other words, she's annoying. She's bothersome. We don't like, she's interrupting. She's harshing my mellow. She's getting in my way. Okay, the disciples are saying, so they're telling Jesus in his L-O-R-D, son of David authority, kick her out. And then Jesus says to the disciples, but the woman can hear. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
which is true. Jesus is a Jew. He came to save the Jews. We clearly say in our theology and our doctrine that salvation comes from the Jews. Okay? Jesus, through the Jews, all the first disciples who became apostles were Jewish. All their initial apostles after that were Jewish. You don't get Gentile believers in large numbers until about 132 A.D. when the Romans really put the screws to Jerusalem. All of the Christians moved out to a town called Pelin. And in the town of Pelin, Gentile Christianity just exploded. Okay? At this point and up until 132, you have a very Jewish religion. Christianity was a Jewish religion. And he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's true. Jesus only spends time with two Gentiles. One, the centurion. The centurion had a slave, I believe, who was needed to be healed. And this Canaanite woman, two Gentiles. In his whole ministry, he spends it with thousands of Jews, but only two Gentiles. And so he says, I was sent to the house. But she came and knelt before him, knelt face down, hands out, a, a, a worshipful sense. She bowed down before him, okay, believing that he is at least from God, at least the hand of God is on him. And so she is worshiping and she says, Lord, L-O-R-D, again, okay, proper title. She's not saying, come on, man. She's with respect the whole way. And she's persistent. She does not care what he says. She does not uh, wonder what is going to happen. She has one goal, and that is to get before Jesus. She is persistent. You want great faith, you got to be mercy-oriented, you got to treat God with the right names and titles, and you got to be persistent, okay? God's timing's not our timing. we got to wait on the Lord, and you have great faith. Then she's humble. She's humble because she's bowing down and says, Lord, help me. And Jesus said... It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, you think, wow, that's mean. I don't think it's mean. It's harsh. It's true. It's the way, you know, Jesus calls the Pharisees tombs full of dead men's bones. Okay? We, it is not mean because mean is a sin and Jesus didn't sin. So we look at it at being strong statements. We look at him pushing her, fa her faith. Jesus wants her faith to expose itself. And so Jesus is pushing the limits of her faith. Now, when Jesus says dog, we, we have basically one word for dog, but we also have, you can think of, uh, we have junkyard mongrels, you know, we have wolves, we have you know, very violent dogs that if you see them coming, if you're out somewhere and you see one of those dogs foaming at the mouth coming at you, you will move to the other side of the street. You'll avoid a dog like that. 
Jesus is not using that word for dog. The Greeks had a word for dog like that. He uses puppy. He uses family puppy. Now, granted, if I call you a mongrel or I call you a puppy, I'm still calling you a dog, so it's not like a compliment. But he's being gentle. He's being gracious in his harshness. Okay? And she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. What he's saying, she's saying is, all of your miraculous power is directed toward the Jews. But if you have just a little bit left over of your power, that will be enough to fix her daughter. That she was aware of God's power being so big that, yeah, it's pointed at the Jews, but maybe a little bit will splash over here. Maybe a little will drop on the floor over here. In other words, God cannot use all of his power on the Jews because his power is infinite. And so can I have some leftovers? Can I have just a little bit of God's power can fix my daughter? And so it's humility. She doesn't come and go, how dare you call me a dog? She follows Jesus' reasoning and says, yeah, I'm a nothing, but even a nothing can be helped by God. And so Jesus said, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly and fully and completely. No uh, recuperation necessary. And so when we look at her faith and we look at our faith, we see that we need to be seeking God's mercy. We don't tell God what to do. We have true knowledge of who Jesus is in the proper titles and the proper names. We are reverent in addressing God. We are reverent and worshipful in addressing God. We are persistent. We don't give up. If it truly is important to you, like a demon-possessed daughter, you don't give up. You pray for it weeks, months, even years. You are persistent and we are humble. We realize who we are in relationship to God. And these things show great faith for the woman and for ourselves. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this understanding of faith and what great faith is in your mind. We just praise you for all of these things and ask your blessing on the remainder of the day. We ask this in the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.